Welcome to Write Up, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. This episode is part of a four-part series in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm Nomfondo Ramalekane, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Foluke Adebisi, a senior lecturer in law at Bristol University in the United Kingdom. The Oxford Human Rights Hub is an anti-racist organisation and we are committed to continuously working to be better allies to communities protesting against deeply entrenched systems of racial domination and oppression. The horrific murder of George Floyd in the United States turned worldwide attention to the scourge of endemic police brutality against black communities and other communities of colour. It also exposed the complicit cruelty of white indifference. These are not new issues. The struggle for racial equality has been the unforgiving work of generations. The heavy mental of justice yet to be served has been carried across centuries by defiant peoples whose only demand is a recognition of their basic humanity, of freedom. We can all do better, and we can all do something in our small corners of the world to support this imperative. In this spirit, this podcast series aims to amplify the voices of black and brown scholars, activists and practitioners We also want to acknowledge a long legacy of work that has collectively, across time and disciplines, built and bolstered the foundations of this present movement. Now is the time to listen, learn, support and amplify. We feel very lucky at The Hub to have such a diverse community of scholarship and practice to call upon to share their expertise. But we also know that we cannot become complacent and we must constantly ask who is missing. We hope we can always answer by making space for others to be seen and heard. Today's episode focuses on decolonizing education. It looks particularly at the intersection between human rights and the decolonial approach to education. Dr. Adebisi is an expert in an intersection of areas looking at law, race, equality, legal education and decolonizing education. She's also the founder of Forever Africa Conference and Events a hub for Pan-Africanist thoughts and community in the UK. Dr. Adebisi, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, it's really nice to meet you as well. So our listeners might be joining us with different degrees of familiarity with the concept of decolonization. Could you start by explaining what decolonizing education and knowledge means? Okay, so that's a big question and I'm going to try and uh, sort of summarize that very quickly. Uh, I think the first thing to point out is decolonization as a uh, as a word uh, goes beyond uh, equality, diversity and inclusion. Although I tend to prefer to say taking a decolonial approach than decolonization. And I'll try and explain uh, why that is. Um, I think decolonization puts in mind an end point, that there's something we want to arrive at, there's a goal we want to reach, and then everything will be fine. But decolonial approach uh, suggests a way of being uh, rather than a destination. Um, and I also think it's it's worthy of note to understand that there are different uh, sort of origins or contexts in which decolonization or the idea of a decolonial uh, approach operates and uh, sometimes uh, understood uh, sort of slightly differently. So in settler colonies, 
the idea or the uh, concern with returning uh, of land is uh, very important in uh, sort of linking that back to what we're, you know, what's the context of education, what knowledge uh, or knowledge hierarchies are about. In post-colonial states is very much the after effects of uh, the colonial occupation. So what's, uh, what power legacies have been left behind? And these usually are around economics, but also around epistemology. So where the colonial has become supposedly universal. And you see this a lot, uh, you know, in the way in which uh, legal practice, for example, uh, occurs or how the structures of legal practice is engaged with. Um, in Latin America uh, and uh, Caribbean critical legal school, and that's where I sort of base my own understanding of uh, decolonization, they're concerned with decentering Eurocentric knowledge. So not in sort of destabilizing it, not in sort of discounting European knowledge, but in understanding that European uh, Eurocentric knowledge has a certain trajectory, certain history and certain use. There is a place where knowledge has been and what knowledge has been used for. We have to acknowledge that and also decenter it and also understand that there are other knowledges which are relevant, which are pertinent, which are valid. And these knowledges can lead us to thinking about worlds otherwise. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, I think it's Atul Escobar who talks about worlds, uh, ways of being otherwise. So uh, disrupting the continuation of empire, uh, acknowledging that there is a history to the world that has produced and continues to produce injustice and trying to use knowledge. So where we stand within the university to disrupt that reproduction of injustice and arrive at some kind of justice. So that would be my brief summary of what decolonization is. Okay, um, and thank you for that. I think it covered quite a, a range of issues that will come up and more questions later. So in your work, you, you look at decolonization within the context of education, in particular, um, sort of decolonizing of education within the neoliberal university context. Can you elaborate on sort of the links between neoliberalism and enduring colonization in the higher education context? Okay, so uh, again, this 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 could turn out to be a three-hour lecture, but I'm going to try and summarize. So when we talk about neoliberal universities, the idea of the uh, university uh, as a as part of, uh, within the structure of uh, free market capitalism. Uh, and I think one of the problems with trying to decolonize within this sort of structure is not uh, acknowledging, you know, going back to what I said uh, in response to the previous question, acknowledging exactly what free market capitalism has, you know, sort of brought about. If we're talking about uh, worlds otherwise or ways of being otherwise, and we don't acknowledge that uh, the trade in enslaved Africans was mostly based on free market capitalism. And then we extend that idea of, you know, let the market decide what is of value. And then you extend it to education or knowledge. Then that would mean that we only value knowledge which the market says is right, not knowledge which can achieve justice. So rather than pursuing the ends of justice, we are pursuing the ends of the market, even if the market ends or the market goals results in, let's say, uh, silencing of voices, destructions of ways of knowing, ways of being. And I don't think uh, at all times that 
the ends of decolonization or decolonial approaches are compatible with uh, the idea of free market capitalism. I guess coming from that, um, how do we break apart so the relationship between the market and higher education in the sense of what would a decolonized curriculum look like or was, what has it looked like in your own practice? Again, I think this is why it's important to think about, rather than a decolonized curriculum, a decolonial approach to curriculum design, teacher learning and research. Because I think it, uh, it would be slightly uh, an impediment to the aims which we are seeking if we think of, well, once we've decolonized the curriculum, within this world which reproduces injustice, we're just going to you know, stop and you know, do something else. Uh, so I, I think I would uh, sort of suggest that we think about decolonial approaches to curriculum design. So not so much what is within the curriculum, but the decolonial processes which bring about the content of the curriculum, which bring about the structure of who's teaching, who's learning, what are we teaching, what are we learning, and then how that sort of, how then do we reproduce the decolonial world, this world otherwise, this dissented world. So it's not, not so much the product of the decolonized curriculum that we should be concerned with, but how we can engage in thinking otherwise for the ends of justice for all the world. So just to draw from that, um, what is the relationship between what is being taught, who does the teaching and who is being taught in a decolonial approach um, to education? I mean, what are the links between these different um, spheres? Okay, um, I think we often forget about or we often don't talk about how power is implicated in the reproduction of what we would call a colonizer colonial curriculum. So uh, there's a certain amount we, we don't we don't uh, sort of focus on who gets to choose what's in the curriculum, who gets into those spaces where we talk about, uh, you know, curriculum design. Or you think about the teaching, learning, research in law, uh, or the fundamental premises of, uh, you know, or the fundamental concepts of what we consider to be law, the building blocks. Uh, say, for example, who, who's understood to be fully human. Uh, and when you consider those sorts of things, so that's what is being taught, and then you try and disrupt them, who has the power to disrupt that? So, of course, there's, you know, the, the the relationship between what has been taught, who does the teaching and who has been taught is very much implicated in power. And depending on how you understand uh, and, you know, again, because I'm, I'm sitting within the, you know, uh, the field of law, uh, if you, depending on how you define law and the sort of the teaching practice of law is very much in, uh, entangled with uh, power. So the question of politics who gets to decide stuff. So there is an entanglement with power in those three uh, aspects of uh, decolonizing higher education. So in your work, uh, you critique sort of universities, particularly in the UK, for co-opting the language of decolonization while in fact committing to very limited ideals of diversity, incorporation, representation. To a lot of people, these ideals seem like important and valuable strategies. 
Um, but how are they different um, from decolonization? And then how, particularly, how are they limited approaches? Okay, uh, I think going back to, you know, what we said about, uh, you know, free market capitalism, I think one of the problems I see with universities co-opting the language of equality, diversity and inclusion uh, representation is that they can be bent to the will of free market capitalism. So you can always say, well, uh, we've ticked the box of diversity, therefore we're now more marketable. And I think uh, in a way, uh, or let's say I hope, because I am slightly pessimistic, I hope that decolonial approaches will not reproduce that same uh, sort of uh, agenda. But that's not to say that equality, diversity, inclusion and representation are not important. I think they're good things. But I understand them more as a process to which we may be possibly able to achieve decolonization rather than the end. So it's in some ways it could be a measure. So if we have a diverse workforce, it's more likely to be a decolonial workforce, but it's not the end of you know the process or the goal which we seek. Um, the idea then is that uh, equality and uh, equality, diversity and inclusion may bring people who have been marginalized into the structure but it doesn't seek structural change. It doesn't seek to understand why people are being cast out of the, let's say, university structures. And increasingly, we begin to see diversity schemes as something that universities boast about, saying, well, we've got that diversity scheme and that other you know, diversity measure, or you know, we've, we've achieved representation uh, through these sorts of uh, ways, rather than something we should actually regret having to have. So I don't think we should be boasting of equality, diversity and inclusion or having to have equality, diversity and inclusion programs. We should actually see them as uh, a failing on our part to adequately represent the population of whichever uh, police that we stand in. So the, either the state, the region or the world that we uh, live in. So this is sort of to talk about the relationship between human rights and decolonization. Um, so in an article on decolonizing education in Africa, you suggest that international human rights law uh, can be used as an instrument to decolonize education in Africa. Could you elaborate on the role of human rights as a tool um, in sort of the corpus of tools available in the decolonization process? Okay, um, I know which article you're talking about, and I should point out that I wrote it about five years ago. Uh, so there are some things that I think, well, not not sort of like oppositional, so not differently in the sense that I now think the opposite. But I think I, I've become slightly more skeptical. So I do think it is possible to use the tools of international human rights law to decolonize education in Africa. But I think that the tools themselves or the corpus of law, international human rights law, has to re-question its premises, reconsider uh, like I mentioned earlier, who exactly is, when we say human rights law, uh, who exactly is law's ideal human that we're trying to uh, sort of uh, give equality to? I mean, within which structure? Are we reproducing a colonial world while we're trying to use, you know, international human rights law? Or are we trying to uh, sort of recreate the world? And I think international human rights law as a body of laws 
uh, as a as a structure in itself hasn't yet begun to appreciate how much it is actually reproducing uh, an unjust world while trying to uh, sort of create this uh, uh, sort of paradigm of equality. However, I don't think that's you know I'm I'm not then saying well let's throw away the entire uh, sort of body of international human rights law, but I think that to use international human rights law as a tool, it has to be refashioned so it does the thing which we actually expect it to do. So just to draw from that, um, some of your colleagues in this field, particularly looking at decolonizing the law, um, for example, your colleague um, who you cite in some of your work, Tepo Madlingozi, has a very strong thesis that the enterprise of equality law itself is something that is uh, contrary to decolonizing the law. Um, from what you've just said, I think, I, do you agree with his assessment? Where do you think sort of his position and yours fit together or, um, or differ? I think Shako makes really good points uh, about uh, the inadequacies of uh, sort of the right to uh, equality. Uh, but I think my my feeling is that there is a structural problem that into, uh, that the rights to equality is not addressing, uh, which you know I've mentioned earlier the fact that the the world is reproducing injustice. The you've got you know a history of the law being used to do justice or let's say injustice, and then without refashioning that, there's uh, without questioning the structure, we are now asking the structure to do something completely different from what it has been doing. And I think that in itself is problematic. And I would, to that extent, agree with Sheku that it is problematic to try and use a structure which was fashioned based on premises which are almost completely different to the ends which it's alluding to. Uh, and now we're trying to achieve different ends. It, it seems to me that we may uh, only result in a, quite a lot of confusion. So as, as a black woman, as a black lawyer, as a black lawyer who is a teacher um, in sort of a UK university, um, you say, and I quote, often lived experiences that indicate the need for decolonization are not heard. And even when they are, they are not understood because the experience of the speaker is so far removed from the reality of the hearer. So both the law as an institution and the rights framework, as we've been talking about, has been critiqued on this count. Um, how can we bring these lived experiences into law and into practice, and more particularly on how we understand rights and, and their possible relationship with decolonization? Okay. Um... I think that's a very interesting question. Um, so for my, because you you know mentioned me being a teacher, one of the one of the articles or uh, sort of essays I ask my students to read every year, confuse them with this a lot, uh, is uh, Gertrude Spivak's Alcandes of Alton Speak. And I think it's a very important article for everyone to read, to be honest, because I think so. Because the question you ask is, how do we bring these lived these silence lived experiences into the law? And if you've read Spivak's work on this, Candace Bolton speak, she's saying because of the way in which the structure of the world is, it doesn't matter how you 
address the subaltern. The subaltern cannot speak because the processes through which we're trying to use to hear the subaltern would not lead to any hearing. We have closed off uh, any avenue through which we can actually hear the subaltern. So if we're trying to bring lived experiences into a structure which is not designed to hear these lived experiences, so thinking of structures like uh, you've mentioned, you know, the law, a universal institution, a rights framework, where we have presumed the answers, we're speaking for the subaltern. And then we keep on trying to go, well, if we, if we do this, then maybe we'll hear them better. Oh, if they do this, you know, we're trying to, it's, it's, it's almost a, a deficit model. We're trying to help someone without realizing that we have created a structure which will not help. The structure itself excludes. The structure itself silences. Uh, and in Spivak's uh, essay, she talks about, you know, uh, she says it in German, which I'm not going to try and attempt, you know, sort of represent the difference between represent and represent. And she says, it's not for us to represent. So that is not for us to uh, sort of speak for the subaltern. It's for us to represent ourselves, so change ourselves such that the subaltern's voice can actually be heard. And then we represent the structure itself. We need to change uh, the structures. So I think if we focus only on bringing marginalized voices into a structure which automatically silences those marginalized voices, we're not going in the right direction. What we should do is, and this is why I say decolonial approaches, because if you have a decolonized curriculum, I suspect, then you've sort of, the story ends there. But if we continue to restructure, refashion, rethink the structure, then it is possible that we may get to a point or position whereby the subaltern's voice would actually be heard without us speaking for the subaltern or those uh, with whose lived experiences have been cast outside of the law, outside of uh, institutions and outside of human rights frameworks. I guess what comes from that is, is the subaltern speaking, looking at you live in the city of Bristol and the removal of the Edward Coulson statue recently, the Black Lives Matter movement, Roads Must Fall are coming up again in, in Oxford, as well as inspiring other movements around the world. What are the links between sort of these movements and decolonization? Um, is the subaltern speaking um, through these movements? I don't, well, I think certain um, sectors of, that we may designate subaltern may be speaking through these movements. But I suspect if you think about it globally, there's a wide uh, swathe of humanity that is not yet speaking uh, through these movements. But I think, you know, uh, roads must fall, Black Lives Matter, definitely a step in the right direction. The only reason why they happen, if you think about, you know, let's talk, you know, talk about the removal of the Colston statue. If you think about that, uh, as a process. This is something that had been going on for, I think, about 11 years. So even before I actually moved to Bristol, there had been petitions. So things had been gone about, if you uh, want to put it that way, the right way. There had been petitions, there had been letters to remove the statue. Uh, there was a co almost complete agreement. Uh, but, you know, the way in which power works uh, dictated that the statue was not removed. And then eventually, uh, people st stood outside of the right way to take the statue down. 
So in a way, I, you know, sort of, I agree with you that this could be uh, indicative of the subaltern speaking in the sense that there was no way for the, you know, the uh, structure itself, the structured uh, processes or techniques to actually hear those uh, calls for action. And this is, you know, the result is something happens outside uh, agreed upon processes, you know, agreed upon by whom, uh, who was there when these processes were agreed upon. But then uh, I think it's, it's a continuous process because I think one of the problems we have, uh, and I think it's uh, Kimberly Crenshaw who talks about the basement, uh, the, the basement analogy, is that there's very often because there are people placed, let's say, uh, in the middle of a hierarchy or even near the bottom, we begin to uh, discount people who are placed lower down. So I think there is that danger that we, because we know some people who may have marginalized voices have been heard, we begin to forget that for you know a large portion of the world, the structures do not work. They can never be heard, you know, it's, it would be almost impossible for them to be heard. And um, I do fear that a lot of the movements are almost uh, sort of inflective. They, they're inward looking rather than outward looking. Uh, or let's say there's that danger that we, we look inward. We think, uh, you know, say, for example, I as a uh, university lecturer, uh, I may begin to be more concerned with let's say the representation of black women in the university, then I would be concerned with uh, say labor rights in uh, what is designated the global south. And that to me is the only, it's kind of the danger we should be aware of with these uh, movements that we should look uh, both upward, but also outward. So you are the director of Forever Africa Conference and Events, and one of the core principles sort of is sort of a core commitment between Pan-Africanism and sort of decolonizing higher education, particularly creating a space that will allow for decolonial uh, thought and sort of, I guess, a decolonial approach. Um, can you speak a little bit more about the relationship between Pan-Africanism, um, decolonizing higher education, and the work that um, FACE does? Okay, so this is a, a massive question. So I think this is this was kind of the focus of one of the webinars we did uh, in the in the series of uh, webinars we did for FACE uh, 2020. And I probably spoke for about 40 minutes on this particular question, but I'm going to try and summarize it. I think it's important to uh, highlight uh, the divergent understandings of uh, Pan-Africanism within face, because there is a um, an idea of Pan-Africanism which has been put forward um, and has been publicized or has made more noise, and that's you know very much within the African Union setting. So. It's very Westphalian, uh, it's very state-centric, but FACE is more concerned with, um, not to you know, sound a little bit too esoteric, but you know, the masses, the, uh, the wide array of uh, people who identify as African. Uh, and I think, especially with you know, what's, what's been happening over the last few months, years and weeks, I think it's important to 
sort of identify in terms of decolonization the uh, sort of the place you know when you say black lives matter there's you know there's always this especially within the UK what does black mean and I'm you know I'm not really too bothered with uh, almost a, a sort of a race science idea of uh, sort of uh, argument about that but I think it's important to understand the history of Africa in relation to the world and what has happened and how this has uh, been almost aided and, and abetted by our uh, education structures and the resulting almost silence or in many cases distortion of uh, African-centered uh, uh, living knowledges within these uh, higher institutions or educational uh, structures. So what FACE is trying to achieve or what you know FACE's aims roughly, because uh, it's very broad aims, uh, is you know understanding that for us to achieve any sort of decolonization on a global level, we have to acknowledge the history of Africa and the history or the entanglement of the university in creating that particular uh, history. But I think that you know there should also be a distinction, a clear understanding of what we are fighting against and an understanding of what we are fighting for. Because I think there can be a danger with anti-racism as a structure to look at, well, we're fighting against racism, but what is the world that will emerge outside that, beyond the anti, you know, the process of anti-racism? Or the world, it, when you take decolonial approaches, what exactly are we trying to achieve? And I think uh, for us at FACE, what we're trying to do is envision this world and understand that Africa has to be at the center of it. And Africa, again, is broadly defined. So it's not uh, geographical uh, only, but also includes the idea of anyone who identifies as African or African descended um, is placed in that structure. And the knowledge, uh, sort of the knowledge uh, paradigms or processes that have achieved or that have resulted in certain uh, sort of aspect of injustice specific to that African uh, and African as broadly defined history uh, should be acknowledged. It's not, you know, because I think one of the problems with anti-racism is that you just go, well, people who are not white. And that is problematic because even even that is a, is not a, a very definable um, aspect or category of people. We have our last question, and, and this is really about your own practices. So as a law teacher um, who's committed to a decolonial approach, um, what practices have been most helpful um, in sort of increasing the possibility of decolonial thought and knowledge creation in your law classroom? It's been a process, to, uh, you know, if, if, if I want to be brutally honest with myself. Um, I think I can remember way back when I just started teaching, someone said to me that what you need to do is produce not, you know, a lifetime of repeating the same teaching every year, but a lifetime of improving every year. And I, I hope that's uh, what I, you know, I've been trying uh, to do with my own teaching. Uh, I, I think, and, you know, this is also uh, kind of, you know, um, a call to action for other people as well, 
reading uh, materials uh, which are not considered, uh, say, for example, court law, but, you know, decolonial materials. Uh, I often say that lots of people ask me, well, so how can I be decolonial? And they, they're not, they don't really want to give the time to do the reading. And it does take quite a lot of time to do lots and lots of, you know, decolonial reading. And I have been able to, I've been lucky enough to be able to do that over the years because you begin to re-see the world. But I think also listening to our students, uh, it has always been, you know, has been really helpful to me. Uh, I, I have been lucky to be surrounded by really inspirational students, students who, you know, they will not settle for less and they will be quite clear about, you know, the type of things they want to see within their education. And then you then also begin to think, you know, rethink the world based on, you know, you're seeing the world through their eyes. You're trying to almost walk in their shoes. I think that has also been important. That has also been really helpful. Uh, looking beyond the academy. So thinking about, you know, beyond uh, the university, who can you work with? Who can you talk to? Because there is always this danger that we get trapped into the ivory uh, ivory tower. Um, and the danger there, or one of the dangers there, is that we begin to seek out knowledge which only pushes our career forward rather than knowledge that, you know, liberates uh, and not, you know, sort of trying not to be too esoteric about that. Uh, Olivia Rutazibwa said something at a conference I went to, said, you know, you have to, you have to be able to imagine the death of the university. And I think Achille Mbembe has also mentioned this, you know, imagine the death of the university for the purposes, for the purpose that others or all should live. And I think, you know, thinking in that sort of frame of mind is, is actually very helpful imagining if you had to choose between the death of the university and the slow death of the whole world, which would you choose? And I think the way in which we operate often suggests that we have chosen that the university should survive uh, at the expense of the death of the world. We haven't made it, a, you know, not really a conscious choice, but we need to think about which do we want to save? If it came down to it, which would we save, the world or the university? Uh, and... I think uh, Bell Hooks has been really, really important to me. Uh, her writings about, you know, education as freedom, I would say almost a pedagogy of love. Uh, there's a profound uh, sort of power to be found, a different sort of power to be found in treating education as a product of deep uh, affection uh, and sort of almost love for, for the world, for the university, for our students. Uh, and I think the only way in which we actually can achieve a world otherwise is to actually feel passionately about bringing it about. On that note, uh, thank you so much. It's been so nice meeting you, Nomfundo. Up is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. The executive producer is Kira Allman. This episode was co-produced by Gary Pile and Christy Calloway Gale, edited by Christy Calloway Gale, and hosted by Nomfundo Ramalekana. Music for this series is by Rosemary Allman, and show notes for this episode have been written by Sarah Dobby. 
Thanks to our production team members, Monica Rango-Alaya and Natasha Holcroft-Emmis for their valuable feedback in putting this episode together. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to your favourite podcasts. <laughs>